0: Well, good morning, and uh, if you're joining us on the live stream, welcome, and uh, we miss you, and uh, we love everybody that's here today. My name's Paul, I'm one of the pastors here, thrilled that you are with us. We're going to continue our series in the book of John, so if you have a Bible uh, or a copy of the scriptures on your phone or, or device, uh, turn to John chapter 3, and we'll put the text up on the screen for you, too, so you can be following along with us. We, we've been saying, I feel like, for the past three months or so, there really is no shortage on opinion of um, people just saying, well, this is what we need. We, We need a vaccine. We need masks. We need to not wear masks. We need to vote. We need economic stimulus. We need to not go into more debt. We need to gather. We need to not gather, right? So there's been no shortage of opinion on what it is that we need. And I feel like we've been saying for the past three months, no, what we need the most is we need God. That, that's what we need the most, and that's what we need the most is what only God can do, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Only God can bring spiritual rebirth and renewal to our hearts and to our lives and to our church and to our world, and that's the posture that we're going to take as we kind of bomb in on this conversation that Jesus has with a man named Nicodemus because Nicodemus is coming. He said, what do, we, what do I need the most and Jesus says, "You need me the most." And so let's uh, let's embrace that and pray and ask God to help us this morning. God, we um, myself especially, we we want to take the posture, and I and I have the 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 picture of of those Jesus that you encountered. Uh, who were blind or who were leprous or who had lost uh, sons or daughters. And God, they just came and they said, have mercy. And God, there are those that you encountered in the scriptures where just with little, little, little faith, mustard seed faith, God, they just reached for you because they know that only you could provide what they needed the most. And so, God, I just want to align my heart um, with that thought and that idea this morning. And God, just confess, I just I need you. Holy Spirit, I need you. We need you to show us from your word who you are and to remind us, some of us, to, re, to be reminded, God, of who you are. There's people in this room this morning, God, who need to hear and to know for the very first time who you are. And the rebirth and the renewal that you bring and you alone can bring. So Jesus, I pray that you'd um, just make much of yourself in this moment. Would you guide me? Would you help me? Um, it's always in your name. I pray and ask these things. Amen. So let's read through John chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 1 and go all the way down to verse 21. And again, if you don't have a Bible with you, um, we're going to put the text on the screen so you can follow along. This is the Word of the Lord. In John chapter 3, verse 1 says this, There was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council, and he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, which means teacher, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs that you're doing if God were not with him. And Jesus says, very truly, some versions might say, verily, verily, or truly, truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Nicodemus says, how can someone be born when they're old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit "'Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. "'You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. "'The wind blows wherever it pleases. "'You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. "'So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. "'How can this be?' Nicodemus asked. And "'Jesus said, you're Israel's teacher, and, and do you not understand these things? "'Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, "'we testify to what we've seen, but still you people do not accept their testimony.'" I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life. And this is a verse most people uh, would be familiar with. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world... Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Now, John, uh, the writer of this narrative, he's placed this story in a really strategic spot, the story with Nicodemus, because on one side, we have John chapter 2, which you looked at, and there's Jesus doing these signs and miracles. He's moved into Jerusalem, and then chapter 4, which we'll get to in a couple weeks, uh, you're going to have this encounter with the woman at the well in, in in Samaria, and in the middle, you have this person who's really torn between the evidence that he sees about Jesus uh, and, and everyone who seems to, to get that Jesus is the son of God and in the middle is this kind of he's a really thoughtful well educated man who's wrestling deeply with the claims of Jesus now this passage that i just read it, it there's a ton there it's so rich so full i have limited time limited smarts so there's no way i'm going to be able to cover every single thing so some of you might be disappointed with this but i've made peace with that you should too and we'll just move on but <laughs> I want to read, so just John 3.16 in and of itself really could be its own sermon. There's an author named A.W. Tozer. Listen what he says about just one verse, John 3.16. This is really rich. He says, this text should be approached as Moses approached the burning bush in his day. It's a sacred confrontation with God. This text has come under the tremendous pressure of the triune God to such a point that it has been crystallized into a shining diamond of truth, a truth so powerful that its brilliance dazzles the believing heart. I think the essential part of the New Testament evangel is here. God so loved the world. And the preacher can take that phrase, run with it from now until the return of Christ, and never run out of words to say about it. It is so highly important. That this message is to be conveyed to the ends of the earth. To boil it down into familiar terms and words we can understand, I can restate this phrase by simply saying it means I mean something to God. That God has his eyes upon me and is emotionally concerned about me. And if this simple message could rise above the confusion of the religious world, it would offer hope to those who embrace it. That's a commentary on just one verse in the section that we have this morning. So a ton here, a lot of different ways to preach this text. But what I want to do is I want to take this conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus and kind of follow it through and see the different statements that Nicodemus uh, makes to Jesus. Because he's trying to understand spiritual renewal and how that works according to... To Jesus. Now, what's really hopeful for us in the story of Nicodemus, and I hope that there's people in the room or people who are watching online where, where this resonates or at least where this connects to, that he's really wrestling with who Jesus is. And we're going to see him through the Gospels have multiple encounters with Jesus. And, and in this particular encounter, Nicodemus, he doesn't get it. He doesn't leave this saved. So if you're uh, on a journey with Jesus and what you see in his story is a person who has legitimate questions, legitimate longings, and it's a dialogue with Jesus that really doesn't fit into this nice, neat package uh, with a nice, neat kind of ending here in this scene. He, he asks the kinds of questions that some of you might be asking or that some of your friends might be asking. I have a a, a friend who was an Army Ranger sniper, and he now has a job with the CIA that he can't tell me about. Um, and he is an extremely thoughtful man. He's been around the world. He's seen a lot of things. He's seen a lot of not-so-good things. And him and I have very deep conversations about the things of God, and he's an extremely thoughtful guy does not yet know Jesus he i was thinking of him as i was looking at this conversation between him and Nicodemus there might be some people in a room where you're you're you would put yourself in that category as well Nicodemus is a Greek name. It means victory over the people. He's a respected leader of the people. He's a a Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin, which is the highest governing body of this religious sect. He's a member of the ruling elite. He's given authority over every Jew on earth, and he is in a position of incredible cultural power. He is a curious scholar. He's a devoted student of the scriptures. He's rumored to be the best teacher and theologian of his day. He's a descendant of the Maccabees. If there was ever a religious representative in Jerusalem, there's no one better than Nicodemus. And he comes at night, and the first statement that Nicodemus makes is like, you are a teacher sent from God. Look at verse 2. He says, he came to Jesus at night, and he said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God For no one could perform the signs that you're doing if God were not with them. And Jesus says, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Now, that I that language, it might just kind of feel like language that you just heard in church. Like that's just the kind of stuff they talk about. Church, kingdom of God, being born again. And that's just like Christian circle kind of language. But in this passage, that is extremely loaded language for the first century. Because everybody was trying to answer this question, what is the kingdom of God? How's it going to show up? And how do I get in? And there were various cultural approaches to this. The, the, the first, there was a violent political vision. And this was the vision of the zealots. If you read through the Gospels, you'll see the, the, the zealots. They, they believed that it was their God-given duty to overthrow the Romans who were currently oppressing the people of God. And they would do this by any means necessary, even sometimes acts of terrorism. And their vision was military might. That was the way that the kingdom of God was going to be ushered in. The Pharisees, of which Nicodemus is one, their approach to ushering in the kingdom of God was centered around religious might. They basically went back and they said, okay, where are the places that we failed to keep the commandments of God or failed to obey the laws of the covenant? Um, Because the scriptures are very clear that if we obey those laws, then God will bless us. And they had a vision of of a rule and reign from the scriptures. So in order to please God, um, let's not just obey the law that God has given us. Let's come up with other laws so that we can obey those too, because that will secure God's favor for us. So basically what they did, they took a particular set of disciplines and practices that were assigned to the priests, so a very special kind of sect, um, and, and they took that and they imposed those stringent requirements on everyone. And their way of thinking, their approach was, what if we could get everyone as holy as those who work in the holy places in the temple. So what favor of God could we earn through our ritual purity? The Sadducees is another group you see in the scriptures. They're a group who they basically believed in cultural concessions. So their line of thinking was, look, let's be honest, Rome's not really going anywhere. They're a superpower. So the way forward is how do we make peace with that power? How do we somehow have like a mixture of our religion and government? And then there were people like the tax collectors, you see them in the gospels. They were just opportunists. They're like, look, there's a lot of money to be made in this thing. So let's just try to get paid. And there's all these kind of competing views about how the kingdom of God would be ushered in. So you've got Nicodemus, this Pharisee of Pharisees, speaking with Jesus, and he says, look, clearly you're a teacher, and you seem to be pretty effective because you got the miracles that are thrown in there too. And he, Nicodemus just says, I just need to know, are you from God? Are you from God? And, and Jesus answers in sort of a cryptic way. He says, if you're not born again, you can't enter the kingdom of God. And at this point, and you've got to really use your imagination, put yourself in the story here, because it's a very disruptive and disorienting scene for Nicodemus. Because he has bet his entire life on accessing the kingdom of God through his own achievements, his own behavior. And if there's anybody who would be a candidate for the kingdom of God, it would be a teacher with authority, who has power, who's a Pharisee. And Jesus is breaking it to him saying, look, not only are you not in the kingdom, but you'll have to be born again if you want to get in. What Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is like, look, this strategy that you've utilized, that you've leaned on so far in your life to be made right with God is worthless. In terms of entering the kingdom of heaven, your religious credentials are not enough to get you into heaven. Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is here, and yes, I am from God, and I am here to establish it, and the way that you enter in is different than anything you've ever imagined, because you can't earn your way in, you can't buy your way in, you can't educate your way in, you can't privilege your way in through birth or being born of the right tribe or social circle, you can't just be spiritually curious and have that be enough. He's faced with this authority complex because so far in his life, Nicodemus has been the authority. He's been the author of his own story. And what Jesus is saying, look, I'm going to take that pen out of your hand and scrap it. And you're going to have to start over and you're going to have to submit to a new story where you're not in control. And so this is extremely challenging for Nicodemus. And that's challenging for us today, too, because it's the starting point for entering the kingdom of God today, too. And you say, well, why does God do it that way? If, if you could earn or buy or educate your way in, how self-righteous would the kingdom of God be? If it was all based on how good you could be or, or, or what you could accomplish, how self-righteous would that be? And so Jesus answers the statement. He says, I am from God. And he answers it with a double amen. So if you ever hear any of us up here and we just yell out, can I get an amen or say amen, it's not just because we're trying to check to see if you're like awake or not, right? Amen, it comes from a Hebrew word that means it is firm. And John's one of the few authors that actually uses the double amen. And so what he's doing here, when you see very truly or truly, truly or very very, it's amen, amen. It means it is firm. It is really firm. Firm. So when he says, are you from God, he's saying, oh, no, I am I am God is what he's saying here. And he's saying, look, your selfish, your self-righteousness is not going to work. He says you must be born again. Uh, it's a curious phrase, and it can be translated two ways. And some commentators think that it, it actually means both ways that it can be translated because, uh, one, it could be just like it sounds. You need to be born again, which is why Nicodemus is Scratches his head because he's like, that's a real biological challenge. He says, the other is that you be born from above. And what John is writing here is that Jesus is really saying both. You need to be born a second time and you need to be born from above. The new birth is a birth from above. If you remember in the prologue at the beginning of John, this is the point that he's trying to make. He says those that who receive Jesus become children of God, born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The new birth that Jesus is talking about is from above. That is from God. Uh, there's a writer, J.C. Riley, says this. He says it is a thorough change of heart, will, and character. It's a resurrection. It is a new creation. It's a passing from death to life. It's the implanting in our dead hearts a new principle from above. So are you from God? The second statement that Nicodemus makes is a very logical question. He says, how can someone, verse 4, be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb. So Nicodemus has not only concern for himself, but he's now thinking about his mom. He's like, how do I break this news to her? And Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and spirit because flesh gives birth to flesh and spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone who's born of the spirit. Nicodemus wants to know, how does this rebirth, how does this renewal happen? And if you are God and you're bringing it, how does this happen? This is a question a lot of people are seeking even today. And Jesus has a very interesting response to him. He says, Look, flesh gives birth to flesh. In other words, what he's saying to Nicodemus and what he's saying to us today is, he's saying, Whatever you do in your own effort, all it will produce is more of your own effort, but it won't save you. We, we are a people who long for change, especially in the West, especially in this culture, especially in this country. We wanna change ourselves. We want renewal. We want rebirth. And we love, if we're honest, we love when our flesh gives birth to flesh. But that's not rebirth. That's reinvention. If, if you do a quick Google search on how to reinvent yourself, you'll find countless articles and videos and books on the subject. And here's just some of the highlights. If you're looking how to reinvent yourself, You start by saying no to negative people. You get a mentor. Explore new opportunities. Start a new career. Build a personal brand on social media. That's Tim Mohn's personal favorite (laughs) there. And we love stories of people who reinvent ourselves when an Austrian immigrant bodybuilder can come to this country and become a Hollywood blockbuster actor who can then become the 38th governor of California. We love that story. There are sex changes to reinvent your gender. People change their names or their spouses. We change jobs. We change locations. We have a fundamental desire in ourselves to change our future, to become our true selves, and we all feel that. But Jesus says look the flesh will always give birth to flesh meaning no matter what external changes you make about yourself it's still you deep under deep underneath it's still your heart it's still your spirit that's sick and the vision that Jesus is bringing and sharing with Nicodemus, he's like, it's not flesh giving birth to flesh. It's that the spirit would give birth to the spirit. And he says it's through water and spirit. And Jesus is saying, when the kingdom of God comes, it's not about external righteousness. It's, it's an internal renewal. And he's pointing, he's pointing Nicodemus to this passage in Ezekiel 36 and 37. You don't have to turn there, but if you take notes, you can just write this passage down. But Ezekiel is a prophet. God is speaking to him and he says this, he says in Ezekiel 36, he's like, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. And in Jesus name, Nicodemus, you should know this. You're a scholar of the law. You know the Old Testament. You, you should know this. He's saying you could do all sorts of things to try to begin again and to try to bring renewal. But really what matters is what happens in your heart. And you can't give yourself a new heart. Only God can do that. Only the reanimating spirit of God in your life can bring New life In Ezekiel chapter 37, I won't read the whole thing, but there's this really cool scene. Again, the prophet Ezekiel gets a vision from God. He takes him to this valley, and it's a valley that's full of all these dry bones. And he says to Ezekiel, he said, can these bones live? And Ezekiel says, God, only you know that. And then, he, and then God says to the prophet, he says, speak a prophetic message to these bones and say dry bones. Listen to the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Look, I'm going to put breath into you. Blow wind, blow breath into you and make you live again. I will put flesh and muscles on you and cover with skin. And I will put breath into you and you'll come to life and then you'll know that I'm God. And so Ezekiel does that. And he says, I watched when muscles and flesh formed over the bones and skin covered their bodies, but they still had no breath. And he says, speak to the four winds, O breath from the four winds. Breathe into these dead bodies so they live again. Ezekiel does it and they come to life and they stand up this great army got to read your Bible. There's some amazing stuff in there. (laughs) And this is the rebirth that a teacher like Nicodemus should know that involves the cleansing from sin as by water, giving us a new and righteous standing from God, and the transformation of, of our heart by God's Spirit, giving us new life to live for God. That's what the new birth is all about. It's not about an external reinvention. It's about internal rebirth. That's what Jesus is trying to connect for Nicodemus and for us today. And Jesus says, it's like the wind. You can't see it. You can't manufacture where it comes from, but you experience the work of the Holy Spirit. And he's saying, just, that, just like you had no part in your physical birth our spiritual birth is not our own doing. It's the work of God in your heart. R.C. Sproul says it this way. If, if you have in your heart today any affection for Christ at all, it is because God the Holy Spirit in his sweetness, in his power, in his mercy, and in his grace, I love this picture here, has been to the cemetery of your soul and has raised you from the dead. Spiritual renewal comes from regeneration. The third and last statement, and we're going to track with Nicodemus, he says in verse 9, very simply, <laughs> how can this be? How does this, how does this happen? Look at verse 10, he says, you're, you're Israel's teacher and you don't understand these things very truly. I tell you, we speak of what we know, we testify what we've seen, but still you people don't accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things you don't believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one's ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the son of man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. So so Nicodemus is facing two challenges in this particular moment in this conversation. The first is intellectual, because he acknowledges Jesus. He's like, "This this guy's a good teacher. This guy's good. But I don't believe that he's God. And so Jesus starts to talk to Nicodemus as if he is God, and Nicodemus is like, I don't get it. The second part is spiritual. Because he has to admit to himself at this point, particularly based on what he's asking, that he's outside of God's program for salvation. And Jesus is saying, look, everything that you've done to try to achieve salvation that you've tried to do on your own achievements, Jesus is saying, look, that's got to be dealt with. He says, I'm the only one that's come down from heaven. I'm the bread of God to give life to the world. They, they had a vision. Nicodemus had a vision of climbing to heaven. And Jesus says, you're never going to get there that way. You couldn't make it to me, so I had to come to you. And not to be rude, Nicodemus, but all your efforts of trying to climb up to me, those things are useless. Because what you needed, what people need, what the world needs is for Jesus, for God to descend and you need to receive grace because there is a radical corruption in you that requires radical redemption from God. And Jesus, to illustrate this, he shares the story from Numbers chapter 21. Again, read your Bible. It's, it's wild. There's the story of the children of Israel. They're in the wilderness, the exodus in effect, and they're complaining and grumbling again, as is their custom. And God, in essence, kind of removes his hand of protection from it. And then there's all these snakes that come out of the desert and start to bite people. And when they bite you, you get this real bad like fever it's like fire and then people would die and there was no cure for it so moses he sees that god is once again angry at people because of their complaining and he cries out for god to intervene and save these people because they're all being bitten by these fire snakes And God says, okay, here's what you got to do. You get a long pole and I want you to fashion a bronze serpent, put it on the top of the pole, raise it up, lift it up high. And whoever looks to that bronze serpent, they'll be healed and they won't die." And it's an important metaphor because once you're bitten, there is no cure. There's nothing that you can do to save yourself. You need someone else to give you the antidote. And in many ways we fail to see sin this way. We look at sin through like a legal lens, like it's a courtroom thing. Like, okay, I did this thing wrong. I guess I'm guilty. I'll try to make up for it. I'll try to kind of do something. I'll try to pay something because I, I did something wrong. But sin is a condition that you have. It's a terminal condition you cannot save yourself from. You need treatment. And the only person with the cure is the person of Jesus. And the way that you get it is by looking to Jesus because he's the only means of salvation. And Jesus is telling the story here to Nicodemus, and he says, look, just like the serpent was lifted up in Numbers 21, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Jesus is saying, so must I be lifted up. And and lifted up ultimately is pointing to the crucifixion of Jesus, where Jesus will be sacrificed one time for all time for the sins of those who would believe. Romans chapter 5 speaks of this. He says, look, Paul's writing, he says, you see, at just the right time when we were Still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. And very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. Verse 8 crushes me because it says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, rebellious, active enemies of God, Christ died for us. Since we've now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled, that is, put back together to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? How do you access that? Paul says in Romans 10, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Jesus is saying, if you look to me, if you trust in me, your sin will be taken away. The antidote, your salvation will be given to you. The problem that we have with this is that this takes all the authority and all the power and all the control away from us. Because all you can do in this setup is surrender. And we don't like that. There's one commentary. He talks about this scene in Numbers 21. He says, if this had happened in a modern day, this is how we would have approached this problem. First of all, we need to define the reality that we have a snake problem. So the number one thing I'd like to do is assign a group of people who are going to do some research on serpents and why they're coming out. The second team is going to work to try to eradicate and kill the serpents. The third team will be working on some medical practices to develop a vaccine. I have another group of people who are going to be working on some psychological cures and techniques like pretending snakes don't exist. And then we're going to pass some legislation, some laws, and some rules that are anti-serpent laws that we can have here in our community. (laughs) But none of those things work, because the only thing that works is lift your eyes to Jesus. Look at the cross and see what he's done on your behalf, because Jesus brings new birth only when our infected natures are taken on him. He bears the venom of sin and imparts to us a new life through faith by grace. We trust in him, and that's not a love that we earn. It's a love we receive. John 3, 3 16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son, What, Jesus, what John is saying there about Jesus is that the love of God is a love that gives and a love that sends. And what separates Christianity from every other religion in the world is that our God has not only declared his love for us, but he's demonstrated our love for us. And the Bible says he loved the world. And to the extent that he gave his one and only son because Christianity following Jesus is a, is, a, is a religion. It's a way of life of revealed and proved love. On Friday morning, I, I took my kids to breakfast, and uh, we were having chocolate chip pancakes and bacon, which, by the way, is the greatest way to talk about the Bible over chocolate chip pancakes and bacon. And I asked them, I just said, hey, I'm, I'm teaching um, John 3.16. You guys know that verse. Uh, shout out to children's ministry. They all knew it. My son even had motions to it, so I thought that's pretty awesome. Uh, and so we, we were talking about that said, I'm teaching that. My one daughter said, well, don't make it boring. I said, okay, I'll try not to. Um, My daughter, Vera, I said, what do you think people should know about John 3, 16? And she said, it must have really broke God's heart to send his only son. He only has one kid. He sent his only kid. It must have broke his heart. But then she said, it must have really made him smile to know that by doing that, he'd get a whole bunch of other kids. And she said, it must have made him really happy when he got to raise him up from the dead again. I said, yeah, I bet it did make him really happy. What is she describing? She's describing love. One pastor has said of this passage, he said, One can only enter the kingdom through belief in the saving work that the Son came to do. A mission that was a consequence of the love of the Father. A love that gives and sends fully and freely to save and to redeem. We needed something that no human could ever dream up. We needed a solution to the problem of sin and death that we could not provide for ourselves. And what John 3, 17 is saying, God provided the solution in sending his son to take on flesh, to die on our behalf, to absorb the wrath of God for us, and to grant us life through faith. God sent the solution in Jesus, and the mission of Jesus as a sent one of God was not a coincidence, but a consequence of God's love for us. And that is great news because so many people are saddled with this vision or this version of God where he doesn't want to forgive us. Like we better catch him on the right day and we better catch him in the right mood so that we can talk him into forgiving us. But this passage makes it very clear because Jesus came to bring total clarity about what God is like and what he's about and what he's doing in the world. And Jesus says, I'm here to save the world. Not to condemn the world, and I'm doing this because of the Father's love, because of God's love. Jesus is saying, look, I am from God. The gift of rebirth, of spiritual regeneration comes from me. You just have to receive it. So we close with this. I have no idea what time I'm supposed to be done, but right now we're done. Okay, so for those of us who've been reborn, for those of us who've experienced the spiritual renewal and rebirth, what does this mean for us? The first thing, church is we have to do a way better job of delighting in the freedom and the good news that we have in Jesus. Because we don't look like a people who are celebrating living in this new covenant of freedom. Not all of you, but many of you. We just get so used to having eternal life and our sins forgiven. We just get so used to being sons and daughters of God We just get so used to having our name written in the Lamb's book of life. We just get so used to having the Holy Spirit of God in us. Having access to holy, creator, infinite God. We're used to it, but we need to delight in it. Here's a question. Has anyone recently asked you why you have so much joy and so much peace in the midst of this crazy world that we're in? Has anybody asked you that question? We need to delight in what in the good news. Second, we have to prioritize spiritual renewal. Dallas Willard is the author. He says this. this is a long quote, but it's good. He says, The revolution of Jesus is first and always a revolution of the human heart. His revolution does not proceed through the means of social institutions and laws, the outer forms of our existence, intending that these would then impose a good order of life upon people who come into their power. Rather, his is a revolution of character, which proceeds by changing people from the inside through ongoing personal relationship with God and one another. It is a revolution that changes people's ideas, beliefs, feelings, and habits of choice, as well as their bodily tendencies and social relations. It penetrates to the deepest layers of their soul. External social arrangements may be useful to this end, but they are not the end, nor are they the fundamental part of means. We are in an extremely strained and polarized culture, and there is so much injustice in the world, it is overwhelming, but we will never solve these problems primarily through economics or politics. Those things are important. Please don't hear me say they are not because we should be informed, engaged, and involved, but they are secondary. Because if you've got selfish people who only care about themselves, there is no amount of guilt that you can apply to them to give up things for the sake of other people. And we are seeing this play out, this violent cycle of demonizing each other. And when Christians pile on with hatred, it doesn't produce any good fruit, at least none that I can see. But to change the human heart To be a people who can say, Jesus had all the privilege in the universe, and he gave it up to wash feet. He gave it up to love his enemies. And if that's what it means to follow Jesus, then that's what I'm going to do with my life. Only a liberated, born-again heart, stoked and formed and empowered and humbly dependent on God can say that and live like that. So it begs the question, if that is not your primary effort in the world, if that is not your primary posture in the world as a humble servant foot washer, ready to lay your life down, then who or what are you a disciple of? Because we want to be disciples of the biblical Jesus. And the last thing is that we need to share the good news of Jesus with others. John three sixteen through 18 makes that very clear. And if that's not very clear, listen to some other things that Jesus said about himself. He said, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He said, you want to know why I'm here? I came to seek and save the lost. Jesus is very serious about people having a profound life, a full life in Him. And there's a way that leads to eternal life and a way that leads to death. And eternal life is not just about an extension of your biological life. It is an infusion of divine life. And Jesus is obsessed with offering this to people. He says, I've come so that you'd have life in all of its fullness and that you would experience the height and the width and the depth, all the dimensions of experienced love of God given to you. And the alternative is not just that you're missing out on something great. To perish is the opposite of salvation. It's destruction. It's a life here without purpose. It's a full of useless efforts to reinvent yourself. To perish is to be excluded forever from relationship and friendship with God. And God says, this is what I'm doing in the world. Jump in with me. Join me with what I'm doing in the world. And as followers of Jesus, we're grafted into the story of the Father demonstrating and declaring his love through the mission that he gave his son. And so that means that just as Jesus is a kingdom advancer, we are kingdom advancers. Mike Goheen is an author. He says this, the coming of the kingdom of God means a cosmic battle between God and Satan for the whole of creation and the whole of human life. God's power has been poured out to liberate the entire world from the power of sin and misery, death, idolatry, and Satan himself. An invitation to follow Jesus, Christian, listen to this, is an invitation to take sides in this battle, to align oneself and with and experience God's redemptive power. The overwhelming theme of the New Testament is that we've been saved to be sent, and our allegiance is now to the kingdom of Jesus. And so the orientation of our lives is directed toward moving that good news of Jesus into whatever sphere of life God has for us. There's a guy named Lee Strobel, he's an author, he's a Christian author, he used to be an investigative reporter. And Lee Strobel tells the story. Um, he was at a conference speaking. At the close of a conference, there was a guy who came up to him, and he said, I just really want to thank you for sharing the gospel with me. And Lee's like, I have no idea who this guy is. And I'm racking my brain trying to think, when did I ever have a conversation with him? When was I ever in this guy's life? I don't recognize him. I have no idea who he is. And, and Lee says, he's like, the only thing I can think is, like, I used to work at the Chicago Tribune. And I had a coworker who was in the office right next to me. And one day I just really felt moved by the spirit of God. You need to go in there and you need to share the gospel with your coworker. So I went into the coworker's office and I started to talk to him. I shared Jesus with him. I shared the gospel. He's like, but as I was recalling that, he's like, there was nothing. I mean, that guy gave no response, no leaning, no further questions. It was just, I went in there. I shared the gospel because I thought I was supposed to, but, but, but that guy had no response to it. And so as Lee is standing at the front of this room at this conference and the man is telling his story, he said, thank you for sharing the gospel. He says, there was a day when I was working as a carpet installer in the Chicago Tribune office, and I was on my hands and knees behind a desk in this office, and you walked in and you started sharing the gospel with your coworker, and he said, I could not believe the things that you were saying. They were crushing me. And he said, I was already there on my hands and knees behind that desk. And God saved me right there. And I responded to the gospel. You see, in the Bible, Christians are primarily armed with three things the gospel of Jesus, their own story of salvation, and the Spirit of God. And so if you're a Jesus follower today, you have everything you need to be an effective and faithful witness for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus says this, and we're done. He says, when I'm lifted up, I will draw people to myself. When you worship, when you love others, when you love your enemies, when you wash feet, when you care for the poor and the outcast, when you seek peace instead of division, when you live like a follower of Jesus, Jesus says, I draw people to myself. Let me pray. Father God, we want to be the kind of people, the kind of church that lifts you up in all of our lives, in all the places that you, that you put us, in all the places that you take us, God. We want to be the kind of people that lift you up. We want the world to know how deeply, God, that you love them that you did not come to condemn, but God, that you came, that those that people would be set free from Satan's sin and death. God, that your desire is that people would have life and life to the fullest, that people would know how much they matter to you. God, make us that kind of church. And God, I know right now in this room, there's people who they do not yet know you in this way. They've heard about you. They're like Nicodemus. They, they, they know there's good things about you. They know there's good things that you've said but they don't know you as Lord. And God, I'm praying right now that by the power of your spirit, God, you would draw them to yourself. God, I pray that today would be a day of salvation, whether it's people who are watching online or people who are in this room, God. If you just, just keep your head bowed and your eyes closed and there's nothing sacred about that posture, I, I, I want to believe that there's people in this room that really are wrestling with who God is. And we're going to transition in this moment of communion. But first, I just want to talk to those people. The new birth that Jesus is talking about is not just something to be explained. It's not just something for a sermon. It's something to be experienced. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, but there's something that's stirring in your heart, I just want to ask you to pay attention to that right now. Because we serve a king who's really good at bringing dead people to life. And there's no better time to come to life than right now. And this is not something that you'll get talked into. It is, we believe the Holy Spirit brings the ability to repent and believe. And here's what I mean by those words. Repent just simply means that you turn from rebellion against God. You turn from sin. You turn from all the ways in which you are trying to either earn the favor of God or or just Find purpose and fulfillment in life, all the things that have failed you a thousand times. The invitation from Jesus is leave those things. Turn from those things and believe. Believe's very simple it's to know, to trust, and to love Jesus. And I just want to invite you, I just want to invite you to take that step this morning. And if that's something that God's doing in your heart, then I'll be down front. There'll be some people down front to close the service. We'd love to just talk to you more about that. Because like Jesus said, being born again is required. It's not just an option among many. It's required and it's available today. If you have your communion element, um, I just invite you to take that cup that has the bread and the juice in it as you peel back that layer and take out the bread and peel back the layer that's underneath that. It's the juice. Communion does not need a lot of work this morning because the scripture tells us very clearly, God so loved the world. And I want to believe it did break God's heart to send his only son To send the the bread, the body that would be broken and crushed. And to have his blood spilled. And I want to make, I want to believe it does make God smile big time. To know that those who trust and believe that Jesus is the son of God sent from heaven to ransom sinners. To lay down his life, to pay a penalty for our rebellion that we would be sons and daughters. And so if that's your confession, if that's what you believe this morning, then eat. and Take the cup, the cup of the new covenant, the new unbreakable promise and drink. That truth gives us much to sing about, right? So let's stand and do that now.